Hi, this is Caden, and this is my daddy's podcast called Lasting Learning. I hope you'll enjoy this special bonus episode of the Lasting Learning Podcast. In this episode, you get a behind-the-scenes peek of me speaking with Rebecca, a second-year teacher, as she asks questions and explores the use of standards-based grading in her high school English classroom. I hope you enjoy. That I had when I started the grid method. Okay. Um, and I tried it. I tried it once and I tried it twice. Um, I think next year I'm going to try it again. Uh, but for right now, I'm putting that on hold. Okay. Because I, I have some pacing issues. Um, as a beginning teacher and during the pandemic, I have to be on the same pacing as my team teachers. Okay. And I was like, okay, well, I talked to the Teach Better team on the Facebook group. I established benchmarks and, and deadlines this time. And my kids were like, yeah, but Miss Huff, this is the grid method. So we can't, you can't count anything late. We're just going to keep on being slow. <laughs> gotcha. Okay. Um, and it put me, it put me behind okay. um, for my other content team teachers. The kids really loved it. I feel like it worked. They didn't like the whole mastery where they had to redo Mm-hmm. assignments for mastery um but i think it benefited them in the end i just have it's the pacing i yeah, have to figure out pacing first okay and then i learned about standard-based grading and i was like yes this is something new again like i want to try this out because i'm struggling with making my grades have a purpose okay um, and the students, I think, I don't know the term. Some teachers call them like grade grubbers. If you've heard of that term, they just want the grade. They don't really care. They're just do it to get the A. All about compliance. Yep. Um, and I'm trying to do away with that. Okay. Okay. So can, can I ask a, a couple more context questions? So your second year and it's yeah. ELA, correct? Yes. What grade level? Ninth and um, 11th, so freshman Ninth and, and 11th, okay. Um, just to unpack a little bit more, mm-hmm. second year, what made you say, yes, I wanna try the grid method? Cause that seems like that was your launching off point and or standards-based grading. Cause I'm assuming the fact that you were reaching out to the Facebook group, this isn't something that your entire school department grade levels have adopted. Okay. No, I was the only one doing it. <laughs> okay, for what, what was the, the impetus why did you say yeah i need to try this devil in this experiment with it um i think it started with my colleague at diamond oaks um calissa brogdon yep okay um we've been in touch a lot since i um left diamond and went to reading and now i'm at edgewood um I think she was the one that introduced me to the facebook group because i was having okay. teaching questions Fair enough. Uh, okay. And when we get evaluated, I really, really wanted accomplished. 
for some reason, as a second year teacher, I was like, yes, I'm going to get accomplished. Um, and so I looked at the grid method and I saw that it not only aligned with those accomplished blocks on the evaluation, but it also jived with my philosophy um, okay. and how I wanted my classroom to run. Okay. Uh, it kind of had this project-based learning feel to it, um, which I tried out last year at Reading for one of my assignments. Mm -hmm. um, and I wanted to do that again. And I saw the grid method as an actual like research-based method. And Calissa recommended it. And I was like, okay, well, I'll try it out. Okay. So. No, that's awesome. All right. So let me give you a little context first, and then we'll dive, we'll go as fast as you want to go <laughs> or as slow as you want to go. This can be like, we can spend the next four or five months chatting regularly if you want okay. to. Or we can spend 45 minutes today just doing a deep dive. Completely okay. your call. You tell me where you want to go. Cut me off at any time. Okay. There's, there's a lot to this. So, <laughs> yeah. so number one, um, what, what I want you to understand is that the grid method, standards-based grading, um, mastery-based instruction, competency-based instruction, pacing, whatever, they're, they're not necessarily different things. There, there's this big umbrella and they're all different components of it. So it's not like you're choosing this or that. It's, it's all part of the same conversation. Um, I'm gonna, I'll, I'll throw a bunch of taglines at you today because I want them to stick and resonate, mm -hmm. not because I'm trying to just be cheeky in any way, shape or form. So I just want these things to stick. But something that I think is important for you to understand um, is this foundational principle that you'll hear me preach a lot is there's no standard way to do standards-based grading. Um, mm -hmm. which is bizarre and interesting in and of itself. So some of the stuff that I'll share with you is a way. It is the way that I try to explain it and teach it and um, coach and consult people to do it. But I don't want you to take this and say, this is the way because Schmidto, this guy that I kind of met online that was willing to talk to me for 45 minutes said it's the way to do it. So I'm going to run it, run with it and do it. That's, this is a way. Okay. So I've been uh, working with, with teachers and schools on standards-based grading now for about 12 years. Um, and my thoughts and practices and approaches have evolved. And I'm hoping that your thoughts and practices will evolve too, that where you are in year three, four, five, 22, 23, 24, 25 will be different than where they are today. So go yeah. at it with an open mind and say, I am willing to evolve and grow. You're not going to have it all figured out today. You're not going to have it all figured out in 2022 or 2025. It's going to okay. continue to grow and evolve. So that's yeah, number one. I, I had no idea this was a thing for 12 years. <laughs> I thought this just oh, happened. Yeah. Oh, no, no, no. Standards-based grading has been around for a while, um, for a long time. Yeah. I can't um, believe I'm just now hearing about <laughs> I, well, I have it, my it, education degree. I don't know yeah, why. You are, you are not alone. Well, I, I can give you some of the context as to why you're just now hearing about it. But education tends to be this place where the status quo prevails because school worked for us. Most educators get into school and replicate the system that we saw because after all, it worked for us. And we'd spend a lot of our time in our classrooms preparing the next generation of teachers. We set up a lot of practices and procedures in our classrooms to make kids just, just like we are. And we grew up to be teachers. Um, so it's, it's this perpetual system that kind of stagnates and so on and so forth. Yeah. We also have this system. Um, I think I, I appreciate your, your transparency and saying that you were and still are chasing accomplished, chasing the, the label, the designation. 
one of the things that's super interesting and super cool is that your one of your impetuses for trying standards-based grading, the grid method, was that you wanted to push kids away from that same mindset. You didn't want kids just chasing grades. You didn't want them just chasing labels. But intrinsically, as teachers and educators, we do that. We say, we want to chase the label. We want to chase the grade. We see what the minimum expectations are or what other people are looking for. And we just want to do that. Um, and yet we say, students, that's not what you're supposed to do. So we, we've created this weird cycle that it's, it's important to break. So when you, you mentioned the term accomplished, so I'm assuming you've got some form of the Danielson rubric. Is that what you're evaluated on as a teacher? Or do you use 5D or what, what is? You know, uh, where... It's called OTES. Oh, so OTES is your platform. It's where it comes from. Okay, but you've got um, the, is that Ohio teacher education something yeah, or other? Yeah, I'm not okay. really sure what it means. Evaluation system, okay. Yeah, it's- Fair enough. <laughs> it's so, on like, we have a yeah. portal. Gotcha. Um, and yeah. so in it, you've got probably four or five domains. You've got planning and preparation, classroom environments, instruction. Yeah, differentiation, yeah, okay. resources. Yep. <laughs> got it. And okay. I got um, accomplished. I was average skilled, but I got accomplished on two of the, of the okay. sections. Fair enough. So I, I wanted to know that because I'll, be, I'll, I'll just give you some examples and analogies based off of you and your practice. And then we'll talk about how that transcends to kids. Okay. okay. So one of the things that I, I want to make clear, and I'll show you some slides and stuff too, to, to help you with this context is um, the rubric that you have for your teacher evaluation process is in essence, your standards. It's broken down into 22, 23, 20, 20 some indicators or 20 something standards. And each one's a separate line item and you get anywhere from that level one to that level four or ineffective to accomplish or ineffective to highly effective, depending on the verbiage that's used. Mm -hmm. And then somebody is coming in, collecting evidence to determine whether or not you have met that standard and giving you some sort of score, uh, a one, two, three, or four in some capacity. And in its crudest sense, that is in essence what standards-based grading is. You've got the standard, you know what it is, and it's now up to the observer, the evaluator to collect evidence to say whether or not you've met that standard. Most of the time, the evidence for you is based off of a classroom observation or two or five or 10, maybe some conversations with you. Maybe you have to create some sort of portfolio, pr produce some sort of evidence, but it's all about collecting evidence so that they can say where you are. And in a, in a perfect world, it's completely objective. In a perfect world, you could have five different administrators roll through your classroom on any given day, see the same thing and come out with the same scores. Mm -hmm. um, that is what we mean by standards-based grade. It's, it's standard. A standard is only standard if it's standard. If multiple people see it the same way, it's standardized. How they collect that evidence is, not, is the subjective part. Well, like I said, they can come in your classroom for 15 minutes or 17 minutes. Should it make a difference? Do the, the can they observe you on a Monday or a Friday or Tuesday or Thursday, first hour or seventh hour, whatever the case may be, that's where some of that subjectivity comes in. But standards-based grading in essence is, it doesn't matter the medium, it doesn't matter how I collect the evidence, if how I grade it is gonna be compared to a standard or a rubric in some capacity or some articulation of this is what I'm looking for. And the recipient, the person that I'm collecting the evidence from has confidence that it's valid, that other people would see it the same way and it's actionable. So when I get feedback on it, I can do something with it. So that those are the basic premises. So when you get an observation in October, your administrator gives you some feedback, you should look at it and say, okay, I know what to do with this. I can yeah. go and do something to, to make it better and you can work towards it. Mm -hmm. I, another 
extremely important thing that I want you to understand. This is a Dave Schmidow principle. So th this is this is where it might come against some of the things that you're doing in your classroom, but mm -hmm. it will probably also help with your pacing. Okay. When somebody comes to observe you in your classroom, so your teacher evaluation rubric is a, a one, two, three, four, like four levels. Yeah, and effective okay. to accomplish. <laughs> and effective to have accomplished. So the observer, the evaluator does not come into your classroom and first identify whether or not you are hitting all the level one ineffective skills first. They do not come in and say, you need to prove to me that you are ineffective or that you are level one before I have confidence that you can go and do the level two, right? Mm -hmm. They come in and they simply say, I need to, to see, are you at that level three, that effective level or, or not? If you are awesome, are you accomplished? If not, let's move backwards and see where you are. Yeah. They set the standard at the standard and then they shift from there. Yeah. What I see happening in a lot of classrooms is when people say that they're going to introduce standards-based grading is they create some sort of cool rubric and then they make kids first demonstrate that they can do the level one stuff before they move on to level two or mm -hmm. the level two before they can do the level three, which, but that's not what we would expect for ourselves because that's truly not the standard. The standard is that level three on a rubric or that effective level or however you've codified it. It is not show me that you can perform at a level that is not to the standard first before I let you do something else that's not to the standard before I then let you finally perform to the standard. It's we start with the standard and then we go from there. You eliminate a lot of hoops for kids to jump through. You eliminate a bunch of arbitrary things to get to the heart of the standard. And then you branch out from there, just like your observer would do for you. You would be furious if you had to do 22 observations based off of 22 indicators in your classroom and the observer came in and just wanted to see if you were ineffective. And then after you demonstrated you were ineffective, they came back and said, okay, you've demonstrated you're ineffective. Now let's do this all over again so you can prove that you're a level two. And now yeah, that'd be annoying. it would be annoying. And there's not enough time in the world for an administrator to do that for all of their staff, which is why oftentimes teachers that dabble with standards-based grading start to realize, oh my gosh, there's not enough time in the world for me to go through this, assess everything, grade everything for students to jump through these hoops. It's why students lose engagement very, very quickly because they start doing a bunch of tasks that aren't a whole lot of fun and monotonous and boring and dry to prove that they can do stuff that's not at the level of the standard. So how do you, okay. So now what, is that the question? You're like, yeah, uh, I get that, but, but what do I do now? Because well, students need to have some of that foundational stuff. They need to have some of the background, right? Um, how do you implement the DOK levels then? Oh, yes, yes, yes. Great <sighs> question. So um, do you mind if I share my screen with you? So yeah, I'm go show ahead. You a few things. Um, and I'll, I'm, record, just, I'm recording this so that you can take it and use this and watch this back later on if you want. Perfect. To. Okay. So let me share some things with you. I'm going to jump right to the heart of some things. So I'm, gonna, I'm not going to show, show you a few slides. I'm not going to show it in full presentation mode because I want to be able to bounce around. Okay. But let me just show you real quickly why it is that you might be struggling, especially when you say that you're, you're charged with the task of uh, keeping pace with other people in your grade level department, whatever the, the mm -hmm. situation may be. Um, I'm showing you sixth grade right now. In sixth grade, and you're in Ohio, so you've got standards that are based off of the Common Core, uh, not necessarily called Common Core anymore, but they're based off the Common Core. In sixth grade, in, um, there are 257 standards for kids to master in a given year. In ninth grade, I want to say it's 248 or something like that it, it always hovers 
uh, depending on your grade level, somewhere in that 250 to 265 range. Mm -hmm. So I just throw six right on here because it's smack dab in the middle of our K-12 continuum and it, it works for people, but 257 standards for students to master, oh, which equates, gosh. yeah, right? Which equates to students mastering a standard every 0.7 days. I want you to just, yeah, I, I can see the look on your face. Yeah, it, that's not going to happen. I don't it's not going to happen. And what happens in a lot of districts is they say, okay, we're teaching to the standards. We've got a textbook that says we're teaching to the standards, or you have somebody that had a job like I had, a assistant superintendent, a curriculum director that says, I'm going to create a pacing guide, a curriculum map, some sort of fidelity instrument that outlines all the standards and it tells you which day you're supposed to be introducing which standards to which students. And those things are amazing for about two weeks. But by the end of two weeks, you're ripping your hair out because you quickly realize, okay, 10 of the kids are where I'm supposed to be. 50 kids are way behind. About 40 kids are way ahead. Now, what do I do? Do I just keep plowing ahead or not? And that's ultimately what we end up doing. We just start plowing ahead because the curriculum map says, I'm supposed to plow ahead. We know that the administrator can pop in at any time. And one of their expectations is going to be, are you teaching what you're supposed to be teaching on the given day you're supposed to be teaching it? Yeah. And they've lost sight of mastery as well. They don't really care if kids have learned it. They just want to know whether or not you're covering it. Um, so really quick, basic um, con concepts for you to, to grapple with. Number one, if the expectation was simply for you to cover every single standard next year on the first day of school, just pull out the standards and read them to the kids and you're done for the year. But that's not the expectation. The expectation is for kids to be able to learn it. The expectation is that when students are tested in March, April, May, whether it's on your state assessment or the ACT and SAT, that they still retained the information that you taught them back in September and October, that they have truly mastered it, which means they didn't just memorize it for a test on Friday. They have retained it and they've held on to it so much so that in 11th grade, as you know, when they're taking the SAT and ACT, they're asked questions about stuff that they might've been introduced to in ninth and 10th grade, yeah. because that's true mastery. The reason we have a summer slide and summer learning loss and uh, kids lose information over winter break is because they never truly mastered the material. It's because they were introduced to it. They were tested on it, but they did not master it. Master means you go deep. You are, you are completely effective and proficient in it. You, you've got this thing down, whether you're tested on it on Friday or two weeks from now, April, May, or two years from now. So the expectation kind of shifts. So that's 257 standards just in the core four classes. If you were to throw some electives and at the high school level, you know, you've got kids taking PE and art and choir and all the number goes up to 1,431 standards, which is insane, which means kids will not and cannot get it. Now, unfortunately, um, not every single teacher in your school, your grade level, your district is going to understand that. Um, so what I'm going to show you is something that I've been lucky enough to share with the Department of, of Education, both in Ohio and Michigan and New York and Florida. And I get that wink, wink, nod, like, yep, this is the holy grail. This is... Mm -hmm. This is how you do it. So one of the first things for you to do is determine of the 257, which ones are your priority? Which ones do you really need to focus on come hell or high water? And at times these things are given to you, but at times um, people just went through literally and they tried to play connect the dots. They listed out all the standards and just threw them on a, a map and said, uh, I'll make sure we've covered them all. But again, mm -hmm. students won't master them. Um, so what I've been able to do over the last decade plus is we, we create this formula 
to allow teachers to determine which ones are the most essential, which ones are the most important. And you asked about DOK. One of the things that I uh, use is uh, Bloom's taxonomy, not DOK for a couple of specific reasons. DOK is great, DOK is fine, but Bloom's taxonomy allows us to disaggregate it a little bit more. With DOK, sometimes it gets cumbersome. And we start to think that kids have to do DOK level one things before they can move up to DOK two or DOK three, DOK four. Unfortunately, that is not what the research says at all. Students do not have to have mastered DOK one or two or Bloom's level one or two before they can move on up. A prime example, I used to teach uh, US history. I could not list for you the 45 presidents of the United States. I could not do it. I could not memorize them all. I could not memorize all the capitals to all of the states in America, but I can debate constitutional law with you. I can sit down and have a, an, an amazing argument about the second amendment or the fourth amendment or the 15th amendment. I can, I can, I can analyze, I can debate, I can create, I can, um, I can do a lot of high level skills without having things memorized. Or like in math, if a teacher explicitly says, the slope of a line is the rise over the run, and they just give me the definition of a word, and then they say, no, I want you to go calculate the slope of this line given these coordinates. Guess what? I can now calculate the slope of a line when a teacher just gave me the definitions. And it's the same thing that happens in the real world. You don't have to have the definitions of words memorized to do something with them. A student does not need to know the definition of plot to write an amazing story. They do not need to, to know the definition of, of anything to be able to create or do something with it. And my most infamous, notorious, bad example that I give is like learning how to ride a bike. I've got four kids at home and my own kids do not need to know the difference between a spoke and a chain in order to hop on their bike and ride. They don't. They ride to learn how to ride. And what happens, especially at the high school level, most of your standards are written at levels of analysis and synthesis and creation, not mm -hmm. memorize and understand. Mm -hmm. So going back to what I said early on, if we spend all of our time making kids jump through these hoops and climb this ladder of focusing on the level ones and level twos, you'll never actually get to the standard. Kids will get disengaged. They'll say, why do I have to do all this crappy busy work? And then you'll get frustrated with your pacing. So yeah, that's, that's <laughs> what happened with when I did the grid method. Okay. Yeah, so the grid method is absolutely amazing. So I, I want to put that to the side. Um, what I want you to focus on first is identifying which standards to focus on. Before we even start talking about how to create the, the grids and the rubrics, how do you identify which standards to focus on? Um, so let me back up. In Ohio, do your 11th graders take the ACT or the SAT? ACT. ACT. We so. Yeah, it's required, I believe. Yep. It's one of the graduation requirements. It's, so they're given some sort of score on out of 36 and um, that's submitted to colleges. So I'm going to ask you a very loaded question that I don't expect you to have the answer to. Okay. Okay. What is the difference between a student that scores a 34 and a 31? Mm. What about a student that scores a 22 versus a student that scores a 32? Their level of understanding. What do they know more or less? They know how to take a test. <laughs> okay, maybe they know how to take a test. <laughs> uh, maybe they actually do understand some things differently. A as a teacher, what do you do with that information? When, when you look at, you see one student that's like a, a 31 and another student is a 28. 
Do you look at it and say, okay, I know what Johnny knows versus Susie. And I know what instructional moves to make. And I know what level. I know nothing. Absolutely. No. And that's not a condemnation on you. That's the reality. And whether you teach fifth grade or eighth grade or ninth grade, it's the same thing. Students are still getting these, these big summative state assessments. So they're getting some sort of scale score might be like a 610 versus a 550 or a 745 and an 820. And we're supposed to look at it and say, what in the world does that mean? What is a scale score? Well, the secret sauce is actually in, in this slide, in essence. What states and test makers do is they weight grading on those tests. Certain standards are assessed with more frequency. Certain standards are given more points. And the more points you earn, the higher scale score you get. And the way that the state and the way that the test makers determine which standards are more important is they follow a formula very similar to what I'm going to show you. So number one is not every single standard is uh, tested on every single test. Some standards are tested every single year. And again, some are given more value. So what they what the test makers do, uh, the, the states do is they first try to determine which standards have leverage. Leverage means if you teach it in your class, it will benefit students in another class as well. So as a language arts teacher, which standards do you teach that will actually help support them in math, science, social studies, music, whatever? And the answer is not all of them, although we've been professing for 20 years now, every teacher is a reading teacher, every teacher is a language arts teacher. That is BS. It's not true. Um, And we also can't say citing textual evidence is the answer. Because I jokingly say citing textual evidence is the new dinosaurs and volcanoes where we teach it the same way every single year to every single kid. The way that you teach citing textual evidence should look much different in ninth grade than it does to a teacher in sixth grade, because that's a standard that actually begins in second grade. So it needs to look completely different. So um, first, you look for the standards that have leverage. And as you read through your standards, any standard that you look at and say, yep, if the student knows this, this will actually help them in their physics class, their chemistry class, their math class, their socialized class, you give it a point. You read through it another time. And you identify the standards that you believe carry with them endurance, meaning it is a standard that will actually help them in future years, not just in your class, not later on in the semester, not, not even just next year, but it will help them later on. Uh, it's going to endure and it's going to bring about greater success. So maybe your ninth grade students, you look at and say, well, this will help them as seniors because in their senior year, they're going to have to start creating resumes or applying for college in their junior year, or they're going to have to start promoting themselves or whatever. If it's a skill that has endurance, it gets a point. Then you go through the standards and you look at them through the lens of Bloom's taxonomy. Again, Bloom's taxonomy, not Webb's because it's a little bit, we can disaggregate a little bit more. DOK has four levels. Bloom's has six, seven, eight, depending on which variation you're looking at. I like to, I have, I've schmittowized Bloom's taxonomy and given it an eighth level. Um, <laughs> because I believe that reflection is like this mystical eighth level that once you create something, if you can create something that you think is amazing and then look at it again and evaluate the thing that you just created and still make it better, it's like the cream of the crop. It's the highest level. But what, what I then ask you to do is look at the standards and for every, whatever level it represents on Bloom's taxonomy, it gets that level of point. So if it's a a recall standard where it says students will be able to know or memorize or regurgitate back whatever it is that I've told them, then it's a level one. Understanding is you put it in your own words, whatever, that's a level two, so on and so forth. After you've done those three steps, add up the totals. And you will quickly realize that out of all of the standards that you are supposed to teach at every grade level, in every subject area, especially ninth and 11th grade language arts, there is a definitive top 10 or 12 list top 10 or 12. And those 10 to 12 things that you just identified are the same 10 to 12 that they're going to be tested on, on the ACT, the SAT, and on your state assessment. 
If the students master those 10 to 12 things, then they will actually get a better scale score because they're going to have um, better mastery of the things that are worth more points on their state assessment than they would if you simply covered a lot of things at a low level because you're actually going to teach them to the level of the standard. And now when we start talking about mastery, it's a whole nother level. It's a whole other conversation. Let me stop sharing real quick because when you're focusing on 10 to 12 standards a year, what that equates to is you're now focusing on a standard a month as opposed to a standard a week or every 0.7 days, 10 to 12 standards, a school year is 10 months long. So students now have a month to prove to you that they've mastered something. And when people start talking about standards-based grading or the grid method and um, you remove deadlines and timelines, that's not necessarily true. What we do is we eliminate arbitrary deadlines, arbitrary deadlines, which is those deadlines where we say you have to memorize this by Friday, or you have to know this by the end of the marking period. Why the end of the marking period? Because somebody wearing a suit said that that's the time that kids are supposed to know this because we have to fill out these report cards so that parents know what's going on. Well, no, truly standards are end of year standards. So the students have until the end of the year, but if they want to progress and get your support and your instruction and your guidance and your facilitation, if you focus on one standard a month, at the level of the standard where, at, again, at ninth and 11th grade, it means students are analyzing, they're synthesizing, they're creating things. It's a whole nother conversation. And it's something that students can do given the course of a month, as opposed to once a week or um, once every other day, depending on how it's constructed for you. So that's one big foundational principle is top 10 to 12 changes the mindset and helps support your pacing much differently than simply following a pacing guide. Mm -hmm. So let me pause right there because that was a lot of Schmidt speaking. <laughs> Questions, thoughts, concerns. Um, it's really hard for me to, because you say that's <laughs> your way and it doesn't have to be that way. But I'm sitting here. I'm like, you're an expert. I'm a little tiny second year teacher. Okay, let me pause, 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 rail. pause. I'm going to put you on the spot. Let me just, I'm going to be very blunt and real. What do you know about me other than I'm sitting in the corner of my house right now talking to you on a computer? Because you called yeah. me an expert. What makes me an yeah. expert? You're an author. Do you know that every single day, 700,000 books are published? <laughs> and anybody and everybody can be an author these days. Huh. Truly. Um, yeah, I've been in education for 21, 22 years now. But we know there are a lot of educators that have been in education for 21, 22 years that don't do this. So that doesn't make me an expert. Mm -hmm. What something you have to understand is I have never taught a day of my life in Ohio. I have never met your students, your parents, your administration. You are way more of an expert in that than, than I ever could claim to be. Okay. Okay. So what I, what I am an expert in, if anything, is I have, I'm an expert in trying to find free time so that I can study and research. That's it. Um, I try to read a lot. I listen to podcasts a lot. I dive deep into this and I can simply share what other people are doing and what I have done. It's really up to you to figure out how to make that work in your classroom and in your space and in your environment. Um, you know, I, could you take this stuff word for word and say, yep, I'm going to go do this. And would you probably be farther ahead? Yep. But I guarantee that by May or June, you're going to have a lot of questions. And you're going to be thinking, what in the world am I supposed to do with this next? Schmidt didn't tell me that this was going to happen. And then you have to figure out the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. 
So what I, a principle that I firmly believe in is that you can't steer a parked car. I think I even put that in the Facebook post too, yeah. that you've got to get moving so that you can start steering. And that's why I get so frustrated when people say next year, I'm going to, because mm -hmm. next year, if you wait till September by October, you're going to be losing your mind out of frustration. And you're going to think, why didn't I just start this last year? So I could have worked some of this stuff out and, and had some things in place. There's always going to be a next year. There's never going to be a perfect time. So start moving and then you can start steering, mm -hmm. but you're the one that has to start steering it. Yeah. Okay. So that, sorry, I had to preach. Oh, no, um, you're good. <laughs> so, so you're, you're nervous about thinking, what can I deviate? What can I change? What can I, whatever. So yeah. I, I get that. What other I, questions? Um, I'm thinking about your, when you say teach it at the level of the standard, which is analysis yeah. synthesis. Is that like, a, is that the mastery level level three or is that yeah. the progressing level? So, so that's a great question. So let me, let me clarify something. I'm going to show you another slide real quick. Um, but before I do that, I, I am not a proponent of teaching at the level of the standard. So something that is super important for you to understand and for me to clarify is that what we're talking about is how you assess kids. I'm a firm believer that assessment drives instruction, not the other way around. For the last 25, 30 years, we have taught, 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 and then tested just so that we can prove that our instruction worked. But if our instruction is not to the level of the standard, then our assessment is not going to be the level of the standard, so on and so forth. So it's not about teaching so that we can test. We assess so that we know where to go. I'm a firm believer that every assessment is a pre-assessment and should determine the teacher's next steps. So in my schools, I honestly, I don't care what in the world a teacher is teaching on any given day. I can walk into your classroom and you can be teaching kids how shoelaces are made. I don't care. What I care about is what you're assessing. Because I, I learned a long time ago um, as a, when I was a building principal that when I would tell teachers, here's what you're allowed to assess, that quickly becomes what the teachers teach. Um, so for example, I, I would tell the, the teachers on any assessment, however you choose to assess your students, all I want you to assess are these priority skills, these priority standards. Teachers would say, but, but, but kids need to know this. They need to know that. I'd say, go ahead, teach it then. I really don't care what you teach. If you think they need to learn all that extra stuff, teach them all that extra stuff. But the only thing you're allowed to assess is the top 10 to 12. So when students are providing evidence of the standard, um, that is what you're assessing. If you need to give them some supplemental instruction and support at the level one, level twos, because you think they need it, go ahead but don't waste your time assessing it, making sure that they can prove to you that they know definitions and that they can basically copy off of you before you can before they're allowed to start creating things on their own. Because honestly, most of the time at level one, level two, that's what it is. You know, it, it's, it's, it's funny, I, I, I say this all the time, but we fail a kid if we catch them cheating off of their peer, but we give them an A if they simply copy our words. That's, that's what happens at level one, level two. You simply memorize the stuff that I have told you and you're awesome. And I'll give you an A, but they don't need to. They don't need to. We live in the Alexa, the Siri, the, the Google age. And when they take the SAT, the ACT, those state assessments, those have been written for equity in air quotes, meaning if there's something that a student might not have been exposed to in their, in their environment and their culture and their world, it is explicitly explained to them in the prompt and in the question. It literally gives them definitions of things. And they say, knowing this, do the standard. Students do not have to memorize those things. So assess at the standard, instruct wherever you need to.
That helped a lot. <laughs> Good. So what, what does it look like? So let me share my screen again. Again, this is a Schmidtoism. Do this however you want to. Uh, take it, leave it, shred it, whatever. Start driving the car. So when, when I am helping um, educators, I try to get them to use a four-point rubric. Four-point rubric, not a five-point rubric for a couple of reasons. Number one, a four-point rubric does not convert well to an A, B, C, D, F uh, mindset. So teachers that say, oh, level four is just an A, a level three is a B, a level two is a C, a level one is a D, then they look at it and say, oh, but there's no F. Or what do I do about zeros? Like that's not even part of the conversation. A four-point rubric is not about converting letter grades. Letter grades are not our, our conversation um, in this. And we can talk about how to use letter grades and schools that still require letter grades or schools that still require percentages and all of that stuff. But this is not about um, an 85 to a 100 is a four and a 70 to an 84 is a three. That's not what it is. The idea is to move away from percentages. And I'll, again, I can unpack that for you in, in a lot more detail and why we move away from percentages and points in, in a few examples. But it's, it's based off of the kid's ability, the student's ability to prove they've mastered the standard. Just like when that observer comes into your classroom, they're not looking to say, well, were you accomplished 84% of the time or were you accomplished... 100% of the time, they're looking to say, are you accomplished or are you effective or are you minimally? They simply look at the standard, the way it's been written up, and they say, this is what the evidence tells me at this moment in time. And it's the same thing. A four-point rubric um, is great for me, especially in high schools, because high schools already do a lot of things on a four-point rubric. Because most high schools convert letter grades to a four-point GPA. So that's something that teachers already recognize. Most teacher evaluation rubrics are already based off of a four-point rubric. State assessment scores for students are oftentimes reported to students, teachers, and parents based off of a four-point scale. So four-point rubrics are an easy translation, and they're hard to translate for letter grade purposes and percentage purposes. So that's why I, I expressly use a four-point rubric. When I create the four-point rubrics, do a few things. Number one, you write out the standard, and again, we can walk through all of this. These rubrics are not, they're not necessarily grids. So don't look at this through the same lens as that you would a grid per se. But on this rubric, that level three is where you would describe the standard. And in the standard, it's where you would write down all the contents. So let me go back and show you like a couple examples of some standards, if you will. Um, analyze how a particular sentence, chapter, scene, or stanza fits into the overall structure of a text and contributes to the development of the theme setting a plot. So in there, uh, you can see that there's some things that the kid needs to know. They need to know what a sentence is, chapter, scene, stanza, so on and so forth. So on my rubric, box one would say something about stanzas. Then there'd be another one about sentences. Another one would be about the, the plot or the structure, whatever the case may be. Level three is in that standard. It says students will be able to analyze. So students are able to analyze the sentence structure. They're able to analyze the plot. They're able to analyze whatever. Level two is now going back to Bloom's taxonomy, the level below analyze, which is application. The level below um, application is your level one, which is understand. Do students understand these? Can they apply these? Can they analyze it? The next level up, that level four, is the next level up on Bloom's taxonomy, which happens to be synthesize. All you're doing is you're building your rubric based off of Bloom's taxonomy. And the reason we do that is because that's actually how the standards are written. Um, 
the grade level below yours is actually the level below on Bloom's taxonomy. The level above yours is actually the level above on Bloom's taxonomy. So what you're doing is you're assessing students based off of where they are, where they should have been and where they could be. And this also becomes your driving document. When you see that students are, are getting twos, it lets you know the instruction they need to get to that level three is they need to learn how to analyze plot or analyze sentence structure. If you have a bunch of students that are at this level three, this becomes your working group or your instructional group because you wanna push them to that level four and you can see where they are and where they wanna go. Your rubric becomes your curriculum map, it becomes your pacing guide, it becomes all things to help you determine where students are. So you use it to assess students, because that assessment helps you plan for students and that plan helps you instruct students, which then again, allows you to continue to assess students. But you always assess at that got it level. Let me show you some examples. So <laughs> there have been teachers out there, for example, in math, where they create equations or problems for students. There's a level one equation, a level two equation, level three. Students start with the level three. So a teacher may, might just give them a couple of the problems to the level three. If they master that, awesome. Now they get to work on level four. If they don't, the teacher then says, okay, but can you do the level two? If they can't, okay, but can you do the level one? They start with the level that they're supposed to be at and they move from there. In language arts, teachers oftentimes take literature, information, writing, they put it all into one big rubric. And this becomes like your instructional focus for that entire month where maybe you're looking at a sentence structure, chapter, scene, stanza, whatever, you're looking at it through the lens of literature. But in the same lens, informational text talks about um, analyzing sentence structure, paragraphs, formatting, which is very similar to literature. And then in writing, they actually have to write something that has proper formatting. So you've got this big instructional unit and you're assessing whether or not the kids can do it through literature and information and writing all at the same time. And this becomes your rubric, your standards-based grading document, if you will. I've seen teachers break it up and they say, literature, here are some possible assessments to prove to me that you're at that level three. Writing, here's some possible things that you can do as students. There's so many different ways to really break it down, but you're assessing the rubric, trying to figure out where students are and then adjusting from there. Okay, so how do you know if they're at <coughs> three? Like what if I'm just too harsh <laughs> of a grader? What if oh. I'm just too easy of a grader? What if I'm subject, I know this is objective, but I'm looking at yeah. Lucy Liu and yep. I know that she has a really rough home life and she's barely making it to school, but she's trying. Yeah. Like, so let yeah, oh, so good, uh, so good, so good. So let, do you remember the tagline I told you early on? A standard is only standard if it's standard? Yes. I want you to resonate on that. A standard is only standard if it's standard. When it comes to assessing a standard, none of that stuff matters. All of that stuff matters when you're instructing a student. But when you're assessing, a standard is only standard if it's standard. So let me give you a prime example. I, I love that you just went there because that's an amazing example to give. Let me, I'm, let me show you some scenarios. So let me share my screen with you again. So you mentioned Lucy Lou. I don't necessarily use those names, but we got Johnny, Susie, and Hector. Yeah. And let's say that in your class, that this is a math example. So let's just forget about that. And let's just act like this is one of your language arts classrooms. Mm -hmm. And you gave a test on Friday. And in your test, Johnny got a 75 out of 100, but he doesn't do any homework, but he does participate in class. What grade does Johnny get in your class? Versus Susie, who on that same test got an 85 out of 100, also does no homework, but she doesn't participate. Versus Hector, which I think is your Lucy Lou. Hector gets a 62 out of 100, 
completes every single homework assignment, tries their best in class. What grade do you give those students? Do those other things matter? Does the homework, does the work effort, all of those things. The reality is, and I'll just give you the answer real quick. In terms of standards-based grading and assessment, those things do not matter. What they do though, all of those things do matter to educators when they're educating students, when you're instructing students, when you're guiding them, when you're moving them to that next level, you need to have that empathy. You need to know where they are. You need to know if, if at home they're expected to babysit brothers and sisters, if they have to go get a second job, you need to know all those things because instructionally, you're not going to be giving Hector a a ton of homework to do at home saying, this is how you're going to get your additional support. You're going to be using examples that connect to people's individual worlds. You're going to be using uh, when they're analyzing things or applying them to their real world, you're, they're applying it to their own lives. You're going to be pulling out some text and some literature that is based off of their realities. All of those things matter when you're instructing students, not at the assessment level. At the assessment level, the assessment matters. The assessment is based off of the standard. And that, that is, that's this huge struggle that we all face. We all do. As an evaluator, as a school administrator, trust me, I get into those same debates when I go into teachers' classrooms, when I say, oh, Ms. Smith just had a baby, and I know she's working um, all day long, and then she's going home, she's up all night, she's exhausted. But if I grade Ms. Smith on a slightly different standard than I do Mr. Jones, who is a shop teacher, um, he's a single 45-year-old man who doesn't have those same responsibilities at home. And I say, um, Mr. Jones, your scenario is a whole lot easier. So I'm gonna raise the expectation for you to compare to Ms. Smith. Then I'm not being, I'm, I'm not treating them equally in terms of the assessment. Yeah, I'm gonna offer different levels of grace and different levels of support, but the rubric is the rubric. The standard is the standard. My responsibility is to give people the skills the, uh, necessary to help them perform at the level of the expectation. So it's not about not having a heart. It's not about meeting kids where they are. It's actually the exact opposite. You have to know those things that you can bring people to the standard. Because when we water things down and we start thinking in our head, they'll never be able to get there. They'll never be able to get there. That's the reality. Our job is to help kids get there. Um, Am I allowed? Yes. (laughs) I know I'm allowed. Um, in In my grade book. Uh-huh. I'm trying to do standard-based grading. <coughs> like right now, I think my principal, there was one slide that talked about standard-based grading, but that was it. Um, and we still do the 80%, like the progress book, mm-hmm. 62 out of 100 type thing. Mm-hmm. But if I want to do standard-based grading in my grade book, mm-hmm. I'm going to have to inevitably link that four point scale to a percent the four equals an a the three equals a b Mm -hmm. um but can i have some of those behaviors graded like task completion i just i think it was ray on her free course on the academy said that you can still grade those behaviors, responsibility, accountability, advocacy, but it goes in a different grade book. Mm-hmm. So uh, let me let me speak to you as a dad first. So I've got four kids. My oldest is in high school, my youngest is in kindergarten and two others in the middle there. As a dad, when my kids get a report card, the first thing I look at are the comments from the teachers. 
the comments matter more to me than the ac actual academic letter grade because the comments typically are things that I can help a teacher with. If a teacher writes in the comments that my son or daughter is not completing their work or they're not trying their best or they're apathetic or they're disrespectful, I can help with that. If a teacher says that my oldest son Cameron is struggling with um, dissecting the, the details of the plot when they're reading To Kill a Mockingbird, as a parent, what am I gonna do with that? Not a whole lot. I, 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 that's why I'm trusting this teacher to, to dive into that content. So honestly, when we disaggregate the data, when we pull those sorts of things out of the grade book and report it in a different way, it actually helps parents, it helps students. It doesn't muddy the waters. Um, that's, that's one major principle. What that looks like is completely up to you and your system and what your report cards look like. In some places, it means you're reporting that stuff in comments. Maybe in the comments, you would simply say, Johnny has turned in every assignment late this marking period, or um, he gives me horrible effort the first time through because he knows he can redo and retake things. If you want to just write it out in comments, go for it and have like a, a comment bank and you're just cutting and pasting it for kids. That's cool. What I encourage schools or departments to do if an entire school or department get, goes to this level is they actually have a citizenship grade or some sort of behavior rubric. And on just like you would for the standards, when you have a rubric for it, you would have a standard uh, rubric for your behavior. And a three would be completes everything on time, four would be completes everything early, what, whatever. And you'd actually pull that stuff out as well. What you wanna do is you wanna make the communication as streamlined as possible. Because with standards-based grading, it's all about communication, not compensation. That's a Rick Warmly line. That's not a Dave Schmidtism. So Rick Warmly, like the guru of standards-based grading, says the idea of behind grading is simply about providing feedback that communicates expectations that people can do something with. And if my son or daughter has an 80% in class, and I don't know is that 80% because they don't understand some of the material, or is that 80% because they turn some things in late, or is it because uh, they used a blue pen, they're supposed to use a black pen, whatever. I don't know how to help. Similarly, if your letter grades have to be explained by attending a parent-teacher conference, then it tells me that your letter grades aren't communicating anything to me because I still need to reach out to you and say, can you explain this grade to me? So it's not communicating anything. Your grades should stand alone to talk about academic proficiency or aptitudes and then have some other mechanism, whether it's discipline, comments, a rubric, whatever, that reports the stuff that parents can actually support and help with. Okay. That was all my questions. Wow. <laughs> um, okay. <clears throat> so let me ask you a few questions because, mm -hmm. or I'll just throw some things out there that, that I know are going to come up. Okay. Mm -hmm. So let's say that in January, first of all, don't tackle this stuff today. Don't tackle the stuff tomorrow. Let it swirl around in your mind for a couple of days. And then you can start like dabbling and figure out where you want to go. Okay. Um, some things that you might be thinking about doing the um, 10 to 12 standards. Okay. Pulling out the uh, standards and pointing them out. Awesome. And I, I would do it truly by quantifying and coming up with the numbers because we will all subjectively go through and we'll do the same thing that teachers are already doing. If you don't do it that way, you'll start. Oh yeah, I think this one's important. Oh, I really like this one. I've got a great activity that supports this one. Oh, I can do this one with To Kill a Mockingbird or Catch 22. And we start focusing on what works for us or our favorite books or our favorite lessons as opposed to which ones are truly the most essential in, in terms of leverage, endurance, and, and depth. So try your best to quantify them first and then move from there. That's number one. Number two is find somebody that can 
struggle through this with you. Um, because, it, and they don't have to be in your school. As a matter of fact, sometimes it's best if they're not in your school or your department, but find somebody that's willing to chart through this with you. And if that means you want to take whatever we're, we're doing with this video and you want to share it with people and say, Hey, anybody intrigued by this and want to go down this journey with me this year, go for it. Because you're going to want to have somebody that you are free to debate and argue with. Um, and they don't even have to be a, an English teacher. They could be an elementary science teacher. Who cares? The principles are still the same. The next thing that I want you to, to really wrestle with is the assessment. I know you, you kind of already tackled this one a little bit with your questioning, but how do you know that your assessments are even any good? How do you know that you're not just being completely subjective or that you're not being too easy or that you're being too hard? How, how often does a student have to show you that they've mastered it? Is once enough? Once they show you they got it one time, does that mean that they've got it? Do they need to be able to show you two times, four times, five times? Um, what is the percentage? If a student gets 90% out of 100, does that mean they've mastered it? Well, what if the 90 out of 100, what if it was 100 questions and they got the first 90 right and the last 10 were wrong? Uh-oh. What if the question, what if the test had only been 90 questions long? Would they have gotten 100% in A? Does that change? So those are all the things that are going to start to unpack and you're going to start to wrestle with and start ripping your hair out over because you're going to think, I, I, I don't know what to do now. I don't know what to do. Am I still supposed to be averaging the grades? Do I take the first time they did it and compare it to the last time they did it? Do I just take the most recent one? But what if the most recent one is the shortest one and I don't think it's the best one? Am I supposed to do formative assessment still? Summative assessment? What's the difference between those? Pre-test, post, like, oh, just be ready. Mm -hmm. This is literally the tip of the iceberg. Um, I am more than happy to, to continue the conversation. I'm more than happy to continue to make you rip your hair out and debate with you the idea that I think using formative slash summative assessments is actually garbage. Yep, I said it. Mm -hmm. um, that you should not have formative assessments and summative assessments. You should be using all assessments formatively and summatively. But we can talk about that another day. Mm -hmm. I can talk to you about the fact that, yes, pretest actually should be recorded in a grade book, as should post-test, because they're all the same thing, because assessments drive instruction, they don't conclude it. We can talk about that at another time. I can tell you that I think students should have to be able to demonstrate mastery three times before you say that, yep, they're a master of it in three different ways, but I can tell you how to manage that and why I use three, but I don't want to bore you with that today. So <laughs> I'm just, I'm kind of just teasing you a little bit so that you have confidence to know that January and February, you're not going to have this all figured out. And that's totally okay. Totally okay. Again, 12 years ago when I thought, oh, I'm an SBG expert, I'm going to go out there and start teaching people about this. I thought I had it all figured out. 12 years ago, I didn't believe 90% of the stuff that I believe today. So it's, it's a different world. So let me just give you a couple of things real quick, just to show you how this, the percentage thing works out, just so you yeah. can say, yeah, okay, I can see how it does work. There are two different slides I want to show you. The first one is this. So what you'll want to do is, number one, identify um, what's proficient or effective or master looks like. So with you, if you're using a one, two, three, four scale, it's easy. A three or four means they've got it. And again, I say three times and they've got it. And again, I can explain it to you some other time. Some schools say it's just credit, no credit. So a check or check plus. So three checks equals got it. Or you can arbitrarily, subjectively, or debating this with a friend or a colleague, say what percentage reflects mastery? Is it 80% or better? 70% or better? What reflects mastery in your mind? And it's that conversation or that internal debate or struggle you're going to have. That's good enough. And once a student has demonstrated that they've mastered it, you move on, you teach them something different, you focus on a different standard. 
So that's the first cue is you have to arbitrarily right now, subjectively determine what mastery looks like. Knowing full well, though, that your definition, your description, your analysis of what is a master will evolve and change dramatically over time. Okay. So how do you then take that and make it some sort of letter grade? Well, the easiest way, especially at the high school level, is to use the scale that's already been presented to you. Mm -hmm. On the left, sample A, all that is is your grade point average scale, your GPA scale. So if you already have a four-point GPA in your school, and you want to start grading kids on a four-point rubric, use the scale that's already been presented to you. If a student has a, a four average, they have an A. If they have a 3.0, it's a B. A 2.0 is a C. A 1.0 is a D. So on and so forth. And that is one that if an administrator wants to push back and say, no, you can't do that, then you need to say, well, then let's start stop using GPAs in our school because they're already doing it. They already take letter grades and convert them to a number score. All you're doing is the exact opposite, taking a number score and converting it to a letter grade. So that's the easy answer. Is that the best answer? No, but it's a starting point. Or you can say, no, I do want to use percentages and I want to convert that to a number score. Again, I strongly advise against using percentages, but if you're required to, if your handbook says you have to use percentages in some capacity, there's a way that you can do it there as well. But again, those are stepping stones, not final answers. That's just like one of the things that you can do as you start moving in this direction. Okay. Um, the rubric that you showed me, um, yeah. <laughs> it looks very, very similar to essay rubrics that yeah. I have made, yep. except I, I haven't been using the Bloom's taxonomy language yeah. to progress or digress. Um, so if I want to use that four point, that four point scale, which you recommend, which I think would be a lot easier for me. And I say, okay, that's a four, or mm -hmm. I think I'm getting stuck on the plus and the minus. Is it an A plus or is it an A minus? Because an A is an A is an A. A B is a B is a B, right? Like, does it matter? So, yeah. So what, you, what you'll want to do is focus on one, two, three, four. Don't worry about A's, B's, all that kind of stuff yet. One, two, threes, and fours. Then you want to figure out if, if you have to convert it to a letter grade, which it sounds like you're saying within your system, your handbook, your guidance, your policies, whatever, you have to have letter grades. Just determine how you want to make that step or that transition, because that's, that's just the, the playing the game of school that you have to do right now. Ultimately, that's, that's not your focus. Your focus is to give students actionable feedback. The one, two, three, fours, you don't even have to give a one, two, three, four. You can eliminate the one, two, three, fours and just have the rubric with four different points and circle things and identify what they have to do next. Who cares about the numbers? That's just something we do because we're, we're told we have to play school. But if you get to that place where you say, I have to do that, use that GPA scale that I threw up there and you have this big rubric and you don't add up the total points possible. Don't say, okay, it's a 16 out of 20 because it's a four point rubric and there's five categories. Calculate it out and say, they have a 3.3 average on this rubric and a 3.3 average equates to a B. Cool. You're, you're good. Or on this rubric, they have a, a 3.7 average that equates to an a, a, a four point on the rubric. That's an A plus. Cool. Do it. Um, streamline the communication as much as possible. Okay. And how do you do, I think it's because my mind is still on that percentage yeah. and still on the points. <laughs> Because each assignment is worth a different amount of points. Some are worth Why? 20, some are worth 40. Why? Why? So like. Why? 
I have no idea. I'm still trying. To <laughs> so the reason why we do it is because we subjectively, and I, so I'll, I'll unpack this for you. I'll tell you why we do it. We do it because we're saying that some assignments are worth more because they're more valuable or they're better or because it's easier to calculate it that way or whatever the case may be. So for example, in, in your high school, do you guys do final exams and midterms? Uh, not this year. Okay. You normally do. And your final exams or midterms are worth what percentage of a overall grade for a student in a mark and semester? Don't know. I, I don't know. This is my okay. first year at the school. Yeah, you're fine. You're fine. So in, in most high schools that use midterms or final exams, they say that those grades are somewhere between 20 and 60% of a final grade, right? That's a big deal. So what there's, yeah. So what they're saying is that that assessment matters more than anything else. What they're saying is that assessment is more valuable then the teacher created assessment that the students had to go home and work on on a Thursday night and turn it on a Friday. That might've only been worth 2% of their final total because of whatever the case may be. In standards-based grading, we say all evidence is good evidence, that it's all telling the, the same story. We're not weighing things and saying one thing is more valuable than the other. We're saying I'm collecting evidence of student learning. And if you show me evidence, whether it's a pretest, whether it's before I've taught anything or post-test after I've taught anything, whenever you show me evidence, it's evidence. And it's going to go towards the story. And it's all, it's standard spacing. A standard is only standard if it's standard. If you're going to start telling students that one assignment is worth 40 and another one is worth 20, they're going to spend more of their time focusing on that 40 point assignment, which means whatever evidence you get from that 20 point assignment is no longer as valid as the stuff you got in the 40 point assignment. Cause admittedly students aren't going to be working as hard on it because it's not worth as much. So the evidence that you have, that's going to guide your instruction is not as valid as the stuff that comes in the 40 point assignment. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's the whole premise behind this whole formative summative thing where people say, well, the formative assessments should only count for a small point of your percentage of your grades or is, well, then students aren't going to give you their best quality. And if you're using yeah. that to inform your practice, which is what formative assessment does, you're not getting good evidence to inform your practice. So all evidence is evidence. Use it formatively and summatively. When students show you they can do something, you give them credit for showing you evidence. And then you also make your next instructional moves. And if you look at something and say, this isn't going to tell me anything, this is just busy work, then don't grade it and don't assign it, period. Mm. Okay. <laughs> I think I've so these are big something. shifts. These are big moves right now. So just know that. I think I've assigned some things like that. <laughs> yeah, we all have. We all have. We all make kids jump through hoops because we're supposed to have points, right? Yeah. Um, how do I, if we can work this just this scenario. Sure. I am assessing comprehension, a common lit article with comprehension questions. Um, very basic. And they get an eight out of 10 because they have 10 questions. And I recently did this, which is why it's fresh in my mind. And I took notes and I said, okay, Bell One has issues with the multiple choice comprehension questions, but Bell One did great on the short answer response questions. And I did that with each bell. And then on the grade book, I just plugged in seven, eight, three, two, what their score is. Mm -hmm. But if I wanna do that activity with that four point rubric that you showed on the slide, mm -hmm. how, how do I do? <laughs> so here, so, so, wow, amazing question. So two things I want to present to you. 
is it is oftentimes difficult to take what we're currently doing and try to fit them in to a new way of doing things. So what you're struggling with is I had this assignment or this assessment that I gave. How do I keep doing what I've always done to make it fit what you're telling me? So that's number one. And I, I can see your face lighting up because you're thinking, oh, well, maybe I shouldn't be doing what I've always done because that defeats the whole point of having this conversation. So yeah. if that's an awareness you're having, awesome. But I didn't say that. That's a reflection that you just had. So I'm proud of you. Um, but, but there are some things that you've done that are probably really, really, really good that can fit into that. So a couple of things that I would ask you. Number one, it was a 10 question quiz and you looked at it in terms of the question formatting type. Mm-hmm. My question to you would be, did all questions focus on the same standards or the same content? So with that student that got an eight out of 10, the, the two questions that they missed, did they miss them because it was different information, different skills that you were assessing or is it because it was a different type of question? Uh, it was a different type of question and different skill. So it's a different skill. So on that rubric, number one, you would have each skill that's being assessed be a separate line item on that rubric. So if, if, if you have some sort of assessment that's assessing 10 standards, number one, don't assess 10 standards on any one assessment because you'll rip your hair out trying to figure out what to do next. Um, you need to figure out how kids are demonstrating mastery at each level. So you have different. So let me, let me give you an example. Let me, I can actually show you a real life example of, of this. Mm-hmm. And this is what I'm showing you right now is again, it's a baby step towards what you're discussing and what you're talking about right now. Again, this is not the answer. It is a baby step. Okay. Okay. So let's say you are the teacher that says, but I, I give 10 question quizzes on Fridays. It's what I do. It's what I've always done. And you're saying, how do I take this square peg and fit it into the round hole that you just presented to me? Sure. Something that you might want to do is let's say that on this 10 question quiz test project, whatever you split up into three sections, the first section let's just say it's six questions. And those six questions are all based off of one standard. And maybe arbitrarily, you say students that get five, five or six, get a four. Students that get three or four correct, get a three. Whatever arbitrary number you want to put on there, whatever, we can go with that. But six questions based off of the stuff that you just taught this week. Then perhaps you give them two questions based off of something that, that you taught three or four weeks ago. Because again, remember, we're teaching for mastery or endurance, and then possibly two questions for things that are that you haven't even taught yet. And in each of these three sections, you're going to grade them separately. If in your gradebook, you might have these lists, they're broken down by standards because your standards gradebook is going to be based off of standards, not necessarily assignments anymore. Right. So your, your um, second section there where it's based off of past content, maybe they, the student struggled back when you taught it, but in the, the last three or four weeks, something has clicked for them and they got these two questions correct. In your grade book, you would go back and change whatever grade they had that showed that they were struggling to now show that they've mastered it and they've got it. In the future content stuff, let's say the students struggled with it and they get, get either one of these questions right. In your grade book, it is okay to put a zero in there because as of right now, you have zero evidence. But eventually when you actually do teach it and you do instruct it, when they do get it, you change that grade. It's not about getting the average or the mean. The mean is mean. You're not taking and taking um, grades from when they didn't know something, when you didn't teach them, when you didn't expose them to your high quality content and instruction. Once they know it, they know it and they get credit or their grade demonstrates that they know it. But you can take a, a, a quiz or a test like this and you can split it up. Or instead of numbering your quiz, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, each standard is a question. So maybe you have standard 9.3 and you have standard 9.5 and standard 9.8. So when you're grading it, each question is an assessment of the standard. So in your grade book, you're giving them credit based off of their ability to 
demonstrate mastery of individual standards. Because, I mean, there's a lot of questions that can um, get unpacked when you say, again, a kid got eight out of 10. One yeah. might be, are you sure that all questions were created equal? Which it looks like that was your first impetus is, okay, well, multiple choice versus true, false versus short answer. Yeah. All questions might not have been created equal, which is a good question to ask. But what if that had been presented to them in a project or debate or a speech or something else? Would you expect them to still be able to demonstrate mastery of it? Because mastery means they, it, it doesn't matter the medium, doesn't matter the type. Mastery is mastery. It also begs the question of if that quiz had only been eight questions long, would they have gotten 100%? Yeah. And what was, what was different about those other two questions? Okay. Or if the quiz would have been 20 questions long, would they have only gotten an eight out of 20? Like we arbitrarily throw these numbers out there of how many questions we have to ask somebody something because it's easy for us to do our math to make percentages. But if we're yeah. doing away with percentages, then those numbers are complete. We start to see those numbers as completely arbitrary. Okay. Um, will your, when I go into the grade book, they, the student didn't master it yet the first time, but they mastered it the second time. Mm -hmm. And I go and change that three or that two to a three mm -hmm. in the grade book. Um, but I, again, because I teach English, we teach the same standards all <coughs> year long. You know, it's not like math where- Why? Hold on, let me pause you, why? I was told that's like what you do with English. But why? I mean, honestly, if a student masters something in September, why do you need to keep teaching it in November, December, and January? Uh... So the, ultimately what, what is happening is you're not teaching the same standard all year long. You're teaching the same content. So you might be teaching plot all year, but there's not a single standard out there called plot. Or you might be teaching characterization, but there's not a standard called characterization. When you go through and you do that initial activity where you start to actually look at what the standards say and you're identifying the standards, you'll realize that, wow, there's a lot that I've been missing or that I haven't actually taught my students. You might do it in similar ways. You might have the students write and read. And, but ultimately, when I hear teachers, because I was one of those teachers too, that, and that's why I'm, I'm condemning you so harshly on this one, because I was that teacher that when I taught language arts, I literally thought, I am teaching reading comprehension all year long. Yeah. Uh, that's what I, but reading comprehension is one standard out of like 70. And what students are supposed to do with their reading comprehension at various levels at, and at various times is different. And it, we need to make sure that we're assessing those intricacies of reading comprehension or decoding or fluency, whatever it is that you're assessing so that we're teaching to the standard and assessing to the standard. Otherwise we're having kids read a bunch of stuff, but we're not giving them multiple skills. Um, we're not in informing them about multiple skills or assessing them on multiple skills as the reading. Reading comprehension is very complex. It's more than read this and then tell me what happened in the story or tell me what happens with this character. So look at the standards and, this, this is the, the beauty is most administrators won't necessarily get this. So when you're pacing guides or when they're coming through to, to be their pacing police, throwing a standard up there that you're teaching, if it's based off a of reading comprehension, they're going to be fine with Yeah. You're diving deep. You assess, you understood this was a need of your students. Keep moving along, but you got to look at the standards first and let the standards guide you, not big overarching themes of literature, information, writing, speaking, listening. There's so much more into that. Okay. Would you 
progressing through the year if that student reached mastery and then all of a sudden they don't have that skill remembered do you dock them or once they've reached mastery you're good or was it just a fluke so i want you to reflect and when you go back and watch this i want you to listen to the words you used number one you said dock them as though points are penalties or rewards or punishments we are never docking and we're never rewarding students it's always based off of what i see today evidence of what i see today um, recency and consistency matter if for some reason um, a student i thought a student was a master of some sort of content early in the year and then march april they no longer have it it's not me docking them their grade will reflect the recency and consistency of the, the evidence but then i then have to act on that and i need to figure out which evidence is more accurate what can i do to make sure that the student truly did master it or i look at it and say man my assessment of their mastery must have been flawed because a master of this would not have forgotten the stuff early just in a couple of months so maybe it wasn't truly mastery what can they do and i need to adjust so grades are all about communication not compensation um but then again i i'm this big believer that students have to be able to show you things multiple times in multiple ways um three is the number I, I use and we can talk through this as you start dabbling with it throughout the year if you want to we can have like i said we can have these little calls once a week once a month whatever is going to help you and walk through some real life scenarios um but there's so many questions that you need to ask before you make that assumption is it the modality changed is it the the, the way the assessment was given change going back to your question of is, is something happened in the student's life has that changed um why have they lost engagement? Because if a student is a master, they're a master. So you don't lose mastery. If they lost knowledge, it's probably because we were assessing something that was low level and they might've just forgotten the, a definition or they've forgotten some sort of low level regurgitation of information. Um, I still Aren't you glad I didn't type all this up in a Facebook message to you? Yes. <laughs> um, I tend to go into things. I'm like, yeah, I'm going to do this all over Christmas break and it's going to no, be you're great. Not. Nope. And then I just have more questions, but <clears throat> I think that I just need to stop asking the questions right now. Yep. And then just wait until I get to that point. Cause I'm not Agreed. at the whole grade book conversion i agree four point i'm not there yet because ultimately that's not what matters anyway and i i'm so i'm so happy that you recognize that because one of the biggest struggles that i face is people that say i need to change my letter grades because my letter grades don't matter and they just <clears throat> they simply look for a way to convert a letter grade to a four point scale as though that is now standards-based grading mm -hmm. and you're looking at so much other stuff and the fact that you're saying yeah that's not my priority right now is exactly where you should be who cares ultimately if it's a one, two, three, four, if it's an 80, 90, 100, what you care is whether or not you can assess whether or not students know what they're supposed to know. And if you know what to do next, that's the ultimate goal. Mm -hmm. um, feedback though, this just mm -hmm. popped in. Yeah. Um, I'm having issues. I give feedback on all of my assignments. Um, Cause when I give a grade, I want my students to understand why they got that grade, mm -hmm. but they're not using the feedback and i often see it in the trash um and i want to know with standard-based grading is there a 
feedback system? Like, is there? There are thousands of feedback systems. So again, a way, not the way. So lots of ways to do it. But if you're using like the, the rubrics, for example, the rubrics identify why a student got what they got. And what I've seen a lot of people do is if a student wants to redo or retake a test, a quiz, an assessment, whatever, what the student has to do is they need to present evidence that something is going to be different the next time around. So maybe if it was a big essay that they did and there's twos and threes and they want to start working towards threes or fours, the student has to present something and it could be a, a short video. It can be a text. It can be something short and sweet where they demonstrate that they know what is going to be different this next time around based off of what you gave them. And then you give them permission after you've seen that to then produce evidence of a higher quality. So let's say that you give them some, an essay where they have to compare two texts that, that they just read and talk about the characterization of uh, the characters in one book and how they evolve compared to the characters in, a, in another text. And the student got twos and threes in characterization and plot and their writing had a lot of grammar issues, whatever. And you give them feedback on the rubric. You're not writing, you're not just correcting all the things all over the paper. You're giving feedback on the rubric because the rubric is where the grade's based off. It's all based off the standards, not extra stuff. The student then creates a little flip grid for you, a little video where they say, Miss Huff, I know I'm, I messed up um, because I got twos and I want threes. Now that doesn't tell me you understand. What they would do is they would say, I understand I got twos because I, I simply showed that I understood what a character was, but I didn't apply it to this text because I didn't quote the text and I didn't say where the author um, talked about the, the character growing and evolving as a person. But when I do this again, that's what I'm going to do. Awesome. You proved to me that you understand what I'm looking for. Now go give me the evidence. Okay, that's not okay. Yeah, that is not what I was doing. <laughs> and again, that doesn't you you might be doing something way better. But you want to make sure that students understand what the feedback is before they go to it's like, again, when when you get observed, uh, your administrator will probably have a sit down or face to face meeting with you afterwards to explain the evidence. And then if you want to be observed again, you would schedule a time and say, Yeah, here's what I'm gonna be doing differently. Here's what you might want to see. Here's what I want you to look for. The same kind of concept. If it's good enough for us, it's good enough for our kids. Okay. Well, thank you uh, for having this <laughs> chat with me. I appreciate it. I would love to continue to have this chat. You got it. Yeah. Um, I don't probably like, not like tomorrow, not next week. <laughs> no, no. Yeah, 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 yeah. Let's, let's let you start driving a little bit. Um, yeah. And you've got my contact information now. So just reach out to me when you start to to get to that point of frustration or just you've got a list of hundred questions and you're saying, okay, now's the time to, to get some of this addressed. Can we dive deep? We'll do it. And if you wanna bring other people into the conversation, if you want me to bring some people, whatever is gonna help you, just, just let me know and we'll make this happen. What I'll do is I'll take the video here. I'll send it to you. Okay. Again, do what you want with it. If you wanna post it in that group and you think it'll help others, go for it. If you're like, nope, this is for me and me alone. <laughs> that's cool. Do what you want with it. Okay, perfect. All right. All right. Thank you so much. I really Absolutely. It. Again, just reach out when we need some help and I'll make some time. All right. Have a good awesome. one. You too. All right. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for checking out this episode of Lasting Learning. Interested in learning more? Feel free to check out one of my books, like Making Assessment Work educators who hate data but love kids or bold humility or it's like riding a bike how to make learning last a lifetime just visit schmidt.net for more information or feel free to check out amazon